I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. While uh, preparing this sermon, I found a story about preaching that has very little to do with my sermon, but uh, begged to be shared. So to my Werther's group, no Werther's until I finish this story, and I'll explain that in a minute. A preacher was told by his doctor that he only had a few weeks left to live, and so he went home feeling very sad. And when his wife heard the sad news, she said to him, Honey, if there's anything I can do to make you happy, tell me. And the preacher answered, Well, you know, dear, there's that little box in the kitchen cabinet with what you always called your little secret in it. And you said you never would want me to open it as long as you lived. And now that I'm about to go home, why don't you show me what's in that secret box of yours? So the preacher's wife got out the little box and opened it, and it contained $100,000 and three eggs. What are those eggs doing in the box? The preacher asked. Well, honey, she replied, every time your sermon was really bad, I put an egg in the box. (laughs) Now, the preacher had been preaching for 40 years and seen only three eggs in the box. He started to feel very proud about himself, and it warmed his soul. And he said, what about the $100,000? Oh, you see, she whispered softly, every time there were a dozen eggs, I sold them. (laughs) What a great idea. There's a savings plan for all of you. If my spouse, Lynn, Lynn, starts raising chickens, you'll know why. (laughs) We have a group in our congregation that this reminds me of. I won't mention any names, you know who you are. And when the sermon starts, they each help themselves to a Werther's candy. They're my timers. And when the Werther's candy is gone, one of them discreetly puts up their hands to let me know that it's time for the sermon to come to a close. Again, what a great idea. Where there's a will, there's a way. (laughs) Okay, Werther's, go ahead. The sermon starts here. David Lynch, the famous filmmaker, suggests that the best thing in the seen world is ideas. None of us do anything without idea, without an idea. You look in the cupboard and there's no coffee, and you get an idea that you need to go to the store to get some coffee. Ideas flow through our minds as fast as electricity. And he suggests that we focus on catching ideas that we fall in love with. And then he says, stay true to that idea. And that's what I want to encourage us to attend to as we ruminate on these very full texts. There are all kinds of ideas in these texts. Focus on catching those ideas that you fall in love with rather than those ideas that confirm your ego biases or opinions. And sometimes the ideas I catch from the scriptures are not ideas I fall in love with. However, I've noticed that any idea I do fall in love with tends to feel good, true, and beautiful. All three. 
Because if not all three are there, the idea is likely more about my ego, my agenda, or some self-serving confirmation bias. And for me, this tends to be accurate regarding any literature I read, the newspapers, the novel, and I'm afraid includes the Bible. In our Old Testament passage, a main idea that I think Isaiah catches on to is the Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. Isaiah caught that idea, or that idea caught him, and he fell in love with it and then sought to stay true to that idea all his life. Isn't that a lovely idea? That before we were born, you and I were already known and given a name. That feels good. It feels true. It feels beautiful. We are named before we are born in the unseen world. And what if that idea is really true of all of us or true of the whole creation? In our Garden of Eden saga, what's one of the first interactions that God has with the human? God brings things to the human and asks the human to name them. God calls the human to be a constant co-namer. A constant co-namer as the human experiences life. And the text tells us not that God is sitting there judging whether we named it correct or not. The text says, and whatever the human named it, that's what it became. God brings us our life and asks us to name it and keep on naming it as we live out our lives. Might that not be a lovely definition of true prayer? Agnes Sanford, the founder of the Inner Healing Movement, a process that she described as, healing, as the healing of memories, has a beautiful metaphor that supports this idea. She suggests that before we were born, the Divine Spirit, God, sits down with us and gives us our sealed orders. These orders aren't what we are supposed to do, but rather they are our unique way of giving and receiving love. Systemically as well. Our little church here, what is its way of giving and receiving love? Our naming. We've called ourselves the Anglican Communion. And it hasn't always been true, but it's not a name that says we're right and everyone else is wrong, but a fellowship that is focused on giving and receiving love. That's another idea that catches me. We are here to notice declare an incarnate loving action in the world. In our psalm, this is reflected in another idea that the psalmist fell in love with. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and be in awe and put their trust in the Lord. I've told this story before, but like the parables, it's a story worth repeating because it becomes fresh in every context. It's a story of an aboriginal tribe in East Africa. And if only us Christians had humbly gone to Africa to learn from them 
rather than convert them to our small-c cultural Christianity and consumerist values. There's a tribe in East Africa where they don't count your birthday from the day that you were born, or even from the day that you were conceived, but your birth date is the day that you are first a thought, an idea in your mother's mind. And when that thought comes to the mother, she goes out into the jungle, she finds a tree that has been her sacred space throughout her life, and she sits at the base of that tree literally waiting for a song to come her, come to her, which will be the song of this child. And when that song comes, she goes back to her hut, and she teaches this song to her spouse as they conceive this child. And then as the child is born and is moving around, they sing this song to the child while it's still in the womb. They teach the song to the whole village, and when the child is born, The whole village surrounds the hut and is singing this song as this new child comes into the world. And then when the child hurts itself, or does something wrong, or graduates, or eventually marries, this song is sung all the way through their life. And then when they die, the song is sung for the last time. Each of us as Mary Sanford suggests, has somehow this song hidden in us that gets rubbled over as we enter this world and seek to find ways to manage all that comes our way. But when I find this song and sing this song, it keeps me focused on my unique way of giving and receiving love. And so I want to ask you this morning, what is your love song, your soul song, the song that captures your way of giving and receiving love, the song that helps you live humbly with your God. And doesn't it seem to be good, true, and beautiful when I maintain that focus? When I seek to live my life singing this song? Then having reminded us of how our calling, our sealed orders, our song, our unique way of giving and receiving love originated in the unseen world before we were born, our New Testament text gives us a picture of how this calling is recognized, rediscovered, and encouraged in the seen world, in the calling of the disciples and also in our calling. Sometimes our way of giving and receiving love emerges from our connection with someone else or connection with a group. In their presence, we somehow discover something deeper about ourselves. It can feel like magic or feel psychic or spiritual, a new idea, a new possibility. And that's what I think is reflected in our gospel passage. The reading summarizes two days in the life of John the Baptist and his intersection with Jesus and the soon-to-be disciples. And on first reading, it's as if by the end of the second day, the call of the disciples was secured, a done deal. However, remember that John's gospel was written or collected in hindsight, most scholars placing its final edition around 90 CE. So the writer is looking back and summarizing that experience. When you and I tell stories, we sometimes fill in all the mundane or time-sensitive things in a conversation, and it overflows with superfluous ideas, too much information. 
But other times, what we say succinctly is more significant for what is left out, left to our imagination. And for me, our gospel feels like that. Our text says that Andrew instantly recognized Jesus as the Messiah, the Anointed One. Really? Simon Peter meets Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and renames him Peter. And instantly Peter becomes the rock on which Christ builds the church. Really? Aren't you curious about how that happened? Or is the writer saying this in hindsight, looking back, and that's how it feels? We do notice that you don't need to spend a lot of time with Jesus to know that he is a significant presence. Some of us say that about how we fell in love. Now five, ten, fifteen, fifty-four years later, we say that we fell in love with that person instantly. I look back and feel that from the first time I saw Lynn in the church choir, I was in love with her. In hindsight, it feels magic, like fate. Or in hindsight, we talk about a special friendship. And we say, I knew the minute I met them, I wanted to be their friend. This may have been an instant miracle of calling, but I suspect that's how it felt when remembered in hindsight. And so trusting John the Baptist, they follow Jesus and ask them, and he asks them, what are you looking for? They're confused by his question, but curious. And instead of answering it, they say, uh, um, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see. And they're going, did he just say that? A little Greek study here. Something very significant is lost in translation here. English tends to be very linear, scientific, and precise. The word for come here is erkomai. It can mean come, it can mean go. It can mean begin, it can mean set out. It is filled with future possibility. It's not just a movement towards. Start, set out, begin a movement towards some ultimate goal. Begin to check it out. Begin this lifelong journey of coming and seeing. So, for example, in our Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, as usually translated, your kingdom come. And we sit back and wait for it to happen. doesn't mean something coming towards us, as in arrive. It's a statement It means your kingdom is getting underway. God's kingdom is moving, but it isn't moving towards us or away. It's just getting started. It's our way of receiving and giving love that ushers in the kingdom. And then the word to see. When Jesus says come and see, he uses a different word than when the text says they came and saw. There are at least five different words for see in Greek. Jesus uses the word araho, see. It means to perceive in an inner mental and spiritual way. They ask, where do you live? And he says, come, I'll understand or I'll give you the meaning of life. Now that would be, did he just say that? Uh, 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 Where do you live? 
When the disciples say they came and saw, they use the word aiden, to see something with your eyes. Araho, to see something, to find yourself considering it and suddenly getting the deeper perception of it, to be so attracted to it that you want to incorporate it into yourself. You become one with, and this is the word Jesus uses here. It's a word that has a sense of perception, a word that frankly links the unseen world with the seen world. And so when Jesus says, what are you looking for? They're so discombobulated that they awkwardly changed the subject and said, where do you stand? So this wasn't a miracle where they dropped everything and blindly followed. They were so intrigued with his language of invitation that they wanted to find out more. And in effect, Jesus says, come, see, and stay. And that pretty well sums up his message. They came, they saw, they stayed. The disciples initially came to see him in the seen world, but eventually came to see him as also coming from the unseen world. He was Jesus in the seen world. He became the Christ, always was the Christ in the unseen world. And anything that originates in the unseen world must first be incarnated, born to become a part of the seen world. We so want to understand the unseen world. We can't. We just can't any more than we can remember our birth. And here we fall into a great temptation. Our temptation is to interpret the unseen world by our experience in the seen world. And when we do, we create a God who somehow justifies our frustrations and legitimizes our acts of overt and systemic violence. There's that favorite quote of mine, you know you've created God in your own image when your God hates the same people you do. Many examples in our history. I want to point out one that someone showed me this week about the prosperity gospel, as it's called. And if you look at the prosperity gospel and compare it to the temptations of Christ, they're almost identical. The first temptation of Christ was to change stones into bread. Henri Nouwen suggests that the te- that's the temptation to be relevant, to be important, to build up your own image, fame. The second temptation is to jump off the temple and the angels will catch you. He says that's the temptation to be spectacular. You'll get on TV. And the third temptation give you the material ownership of anything that you want. Entitlement. Now Christ, when he gave up these, was fed by angels. He was fed by some sense of presence from the unseen world. So faith is not primarily about understanding the unseen world. We're called to become lovers of mystery. That's what a mystic is. Faith is believing that the unseen world is somehow benevolent, perhaps actually benevolence itself. Richard Rohr and others suggest that the most helpful definition of God for us living in the seen world is that God is loving action in the world. 
in the universe. God is a verb, not a noun. Nouns have a shelf life. They're temporary. Now, isn't that a lovely idea? We don't always see that in the seen world. However, if you begin to look for it, if you begin to look for loving action in the world, you will see more of it and more of it right in the middle of the mess. Henri Nouwen suggests, notice the flowers that come up in the cracks of the sidewalk. And if you start to notice them, you'll notice more of them and more of them. What a great idea. If you look at how Jesus responded to people in power, you'll notice that he tended to confront those who used the seen world to interpret the unseen world. Religious and government leaders who used the unseen world, God the divine, to justify their violent actions in the seen world. And sadly, we in the Church are guilty of that as well, especially when we get in bed with government or even anti-government leadership. It always leads us to competition instead of compassion, to ego temptation rather than love and mercy. And so the disciples, like us, thought they were finding out about their calling from Jesus, from him. But really, over time, they connected with the calling that was in them from before they were born, coming and seeing throughout their life increasingly kept them connected and faithful to that calling, their staying power, a calling that had roots in the unseen world, unseen like the roots of a tree, but absolutely necessary for the life in the seen world. Their sealed orders, their song, their way of giving and receiving love. This wasn't a moment in time, a conversion experience, where suddenly everything made sense. It was an unfolding, a constant naming of their experience, whether positive or negative, a lifelong naming and renaming, a prayer without ceasing. This, I believe, is faithfulness. Amen.